Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie. And Arthur White. With Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we preview Ricky Ian Gordon and Michael Corey's great American opera, The Grapes of Wrath. As always, we want to express our sincere thanks to Jake Meir and WDET for their assistance in producing our Opera Here podcasts. This production of The Grapes of Wrath is the first time the opera will be seen in Michigan after its premiere at Minnesota Opera and its subsequent productions in Pittsburgh and St. Louis. We are so excited to be able to delve more deeply into the story and the history behind the opera as it prepares to debut at the Detroit Opera House on May 11th, where it runs through May 19th. So, Arthur, take us through the story of The Grapes of Wrath. Okay, well, as the opera opens, uh, we meet Tom Joad. He's just been released from McAllister Prison, where he had spent... Four years for involuntary manslaughter. He'd gotten involved in a barroom fight uh, in which he claims it was self-defense. But he's been a model inmate, and he's gotten out early. He proclaims that he's kept his nose clean, and now his clean nose is now free, and he sings in his first opening aria. After that, uh, he's making his way back to the family farm there in Oklahoma, and he comes across a man who's sitting under a tree and strumming his ukulele. Uh, That man's name is Jim Casey. Now, Jim Casey recognizes Tom Joad right away uh, because he baptized Tom Joad some years earlier into the church, although now uh, Jim Casey has become sort of a fallen preacher. Uh, But he agrees, after the two men have been reacquainted, he agrees to go with Tom back to the family farm. They make it back to the family farm, and they realize that uh, the farm has been devastated by the Dust Bowl. Crops have been lost, uh, livestock has been lost, and so their farm has been foreclosed on. Uh, And so they decide to load up and make their way to California down Route 66. Tom Joad realizes by leaving the state he violates his probation, but being with his family is more important. And so they load up this old jalopy Ford truck and make their way, as I said, down Route 66. During the night, uh, their first night, the young couple, this is Tom Joad's sister, her name is Rosa Sharn. She and her husband, Connie, have a moment where they're thinking about the future, their new life in California. And they sit up gazing up at the stars and they see one star and they basically hang all of their hopes and dreams for their family. Uh, Rosa Sharn is pregnant with their unborn child and they've already decided it's going to be a male and his name is going to be Moses. Uh, and they pretty much wish upon the star, wishing for a great future um, as they sing this fantastic duet, One Star. Now, during the night, uh, on during the drive, uh, Grandpa dies, uh, and Ma implores Jim Casey to eulogize the old man. Jim Casey is reluctant. He's sort of, as I said, uh, he stepped away from the church. He's begun to question his own faith, but he offers up um, some stirring words of comfort and consolation in his aria, A Word for This Old Man. A word for this old man, 
the family arrive at a truck stop at the Arizona-California state line, and they really experience uh, contempt from the trucker and waitress. Uh, because of their poverty, they're not able to afford the food there. Um, they have to sort of rely on the generosity of the owner who just showed them compassion. Uh, and as they cross the Mojave, Grandma dies now, uh, but Ma keeps her death a secret uh, until they arrive in California as Act 1 closes. When Act 2 opens, uh, the family has now arrived at a squalid shanty town. And Ma really struggles to keep this family together. Now, Connie regrets having left Oklahoma altogether, and he storms off never to return, leaving his pregnant wife, Rosa Sharn. Now, the next day, uh, the Jode men get involved with some unscrupulous contractors. Um, a woman is killed in a struggle, and Tom knocks a deputy unconscious, which violates his parole. Now, Jim Casey ends up volunteering to take the fall, or the blame for this, as the rest of the Jodes flee in their truck. After being angry and frustrated, Ma Jode yells at her son, Noah. Um, Noah has known to be a little slower than some of the other kids. He begins to question his value to the family, is is he value added? And when she asks him to go get some buckets of water, he ends up filling those buckets with rocks and he walks into the river with those rocks and he drowns himself. Uh, and the last memory is of a, a childhood memory of his where his mother sings a lullaby song to him in that aria, Simple Child. The family now relocates at a clean, self-policing government camp, and the Jodes feel really good uh, about themselves. Now, they get reacquainted back with Jim Casey, who's now an agitator for farm workers' rights. When Casey is bludgeoned to death by the deputy, Tom kills the deputy in retaliation, and then he has to go into hiding. Uh, the remaining Jodes family find work picking cotton, uh, and they take shelter in a boxcar. And during the rainy season, Rosicharn finally goes into labor and delivers a stillborn. Uh, Ma asks Uncle John to go and bury the baby, but instead he ends up casting the baby into the river so that everyone can see the fruits of their blindness. The raging river has now flooded the remaining Jodes out of their home, and the truck is swept away. Al goes after the truck, but is lost. Ma, Pa, Ruthie, Winfield, and a very weak Rosicharn seek refuge in a barn where they find a young boy and his starving father. Ma intuitively knows what to do next. Um, she uh, has them all leave the barn as Rosicharn feeds the man from her breast. This family, which is faced with calamity after calamity, still holds on to this belief that there is a better day on the other side of this one. Definitely. And if we can just hold on. And so you really see Ma trying to sort of keep all these forces together to say, yes, this is not going well. This has been a you know an issue. This has been a problem. This has been a calamity, as I've said before. But there's a better day if we can just hold on. And I think the music in this opera um, 
Ricky Ian Gordon helps us. He helps us find that will to keep going, to go that another day. Yes, maybe I don't feel like it. Yes, maybe I'm tired. But yes, there is something better on the other side of this. Exactly. It's that optimism. And I think it's also, you know, both on the page and uh, in the opera, both on the page and the stage, um, the, the sense of empathy uh, really comes through and the sense of dignity that these characters have. They never really, you know, lose that sense of self, that sense of being human, in spite of all of these different calamities that they go through. They are always in it together as a family and they always know who they are, right? Completely. Even though you do have some characters like uh, Connie who runs off, unfortunately, running off and leaving his his pregnant wife. He just can't take it any more of it. So some people don't see right. that optimism or can't feel that optimism, uh, but maybe that's better for the whole family, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? The alternate grapes of wrath, right? We yeah. find out what happens if Connie doesn't run off. Um, as you mentioned uh, in your first sentence, Arthur, The Grapes of Wrath was written by the novelist John Steinbeck. Um, it's often referred to as a great American novel. Some people refer to it as the great American novel. Um, it was published in a time when the Great Depression had already been raging for a full decade. Economic conditions had improved somewhat under FDR's New Deal, but his efforts had failed to fully lift the country out of the Depression. Compounding the nationwide Great Depression was the environmental catastrophe of the Dust Bowl. Extreme drought and soil erosion led to horrible farming conditions throughout Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and other states. Massive dust storms hit these areas, carrying away tons of soil, and crops failed, leading thousands of people to lose their farms. Many became migrant laborers and traveled to California and other areas of the country in search of work, even those without any real employment prospects. The farm country of California quickly became overcrowded with migrant workers. Jobs and food were scarce, and the migrants faced prejudice and hostility from the Californians, who labeled them with the derisive epithet, Oki. These workers and their families lived in cramped, impoverished camps called Hoovervilles, named after President Herbert Hoover, who was blamed for the problems that led to the Great Depression. More than 1.3 million people migrated to California in the 1930s, raising the state's population by nearly 25% during that decade. The abundance of workers desperate for employment led to extraordinarily low wages, which in turn created widespread unemployment and poverty amongst the migrant workers. Some in the camp starved to death, unable to find work. Steinbeck witnessed these conditions firsthand. In 1936, his novel, Indubious Battle, caught the attention of San Francisco news editor George West, who commissioned Steinbeck to report on the migrant worker situation in California. Steinbeck traveled through the labor camps and fields, conducting interviews with workers and observing the working and living conditions. He also worked closely with a man called Tom Collins, a staff member at the Federal Resettlement Administration, who shared his daily camp reports with Steinbeck. The seven articles based on these experiences were published in October of 1936 and came to be titled collectively as The Harvest Gypsies. They were published alongside photographs by Dorothea Lange. Lange's photo entitled Migrant Mother became the iconic photo of the Depression and is now one of the most familiar images of the 20th century. These personal experiences of seeing so many people struggling and in such great need and being exploited by a system that favors the wealthy served as a catalyst for Steinbeck, and it was out of this anger over injustice and poverty that The Grapes of Wrath emerged. The novel of The Grapes of Wrath really tells two stories side by side. You have the experiences of the Joad family as they migrate from Oklahoma to California, and that's juxtaposed with chapters documenting the narrator's wider experience and perspective. These chapters show tenant farmers' powerlessness against landowners, the rampant exploitation of migrants, and the perseverance of and faith in humanity as the migrants help those in need. 
those chapters still exist in the opera, if you can believe it. The chorus provides this larger lens and commentary within the framework of the opera. Upon publication, the response on both sides was thunderous. It was the best-selling book of 1939, and 430,000 copies had been printed by February of 1940. One bookseller at the time reported, folks come in who look like they've never read a book in their lives, and they come in to buy it. Today, it's estimated that 15 million copies of The Grapes of Wrath have been sold, with another 150,000 copies added annually. However, the work drew furious criticism as well. It was widely panned by business and government officials who thought it had socialist overtones and denounced it as communist propaganda. Some areas, including Kern County, California, where the Jode family settles, branded the book libelous and burned copies of it. It was banned from libraries and schools in many parts of the country, and it was even attacked in Congress, with Oklahoma Congressman Lyle Borden calling the novel a black infernal creation of a twisted and distorted mind. Soon after this, the FBI put Steinbeck under surveillance. He received death threats, and anger and harassment was so great that Steinbeck bought himself a revolver for self-defense. But, in spite of that, the book had done its job. In journals while writing Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck plainly stated, I want to put a tag of shame on the greedy bastards who are responsible for the depression and the plight of the worker. The Grapes of Wrath would go on to win the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It was cited prominently when Steinbeck was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1962. Today, the novel frequently appears at the top of lists like Time and The Guardian's 100 Best Novels. Just last year, it was voted number 12 of the top 100 American novels as part of PBS's Great American Read. And the Modern Library has ranked The Grapes of Wrath as number 10 on its list of the 100 best English language novels of the 20th century. A seminal American piece, and to see it be produced from this amazing classic novel to this wonderful work for the stage. Um, it just gives it new life. It's really exciting to be a part of. Yeah. Returning to the era in which Grapes was written and set, Gordon's score here is very Americana. You'll hear Broadway musicals, jazz, blues, honky-tonk, gospel, Appalachian folk melodies, and spirituals, along with traditional American instruments like the banjo, guitar, and washboard. As you listen to this score, the influence of Samuel Barber, Leonard Bernstein, and George Gershwin are all prominent. In the Act One number, It's Not My Fault, Gordon clearly pays homage to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The score overall is tuneful and straightforward. It turns dissonant in the dramatic and pointed moments in the opera. A standout musically occurs in the scene Mojave Desert Night, as three themes are beautifully and seamlessly woven together. The married couple, Connie and Roshasharn, quietly make love as Uncle John gazes up at the sky, wondering where his youth and life have gone. Ma observes the passing of the old as Grandma quietly passes away. The review in the Washington Post said that the opera represents a near-perfect matchup of composer, librettist, and source material. The Grapes of Wrath not only tells a classic, quintessentially American story, it also gives us the unique opportunity to hear fantastic contemporary American artists, librettist Michael Corey and composer Ricky Ian Gordon. Michael Corey is the lyricist of the Broadway musical War Paint, starring Patti Lapone and Christine Ebersole, and is the recipient of the Mark Blitzen Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He wrote the lyrics to composer Scott Frankel's music for Grey Gardens, Far From Heaven, Happiness, Doll, and Meet Mr. Future. Their scores have been nominated for Tony and Drama Desk Awards, 
and received the Outer Critics Circle Award. Corey's opera librettos include The Grapes of Wrath and Harvey Milk, composed by Stuart Wallace. His opera works have been produced at Houston Grand Opera, New York City Opera, Opera Theater of St. Louis, Carnegie Hall, and Disney Los Angeles Symphony Hall. His lyrics received the Edward Claybon Prize, Jonathan Larson Award, and the ASCAP Richard Rogers Award. Composer Ricky Ian Gordon is a leading writer of vocal music, and his songs have been performed and recorded by such internationally renowned singers as Renee Fleming, Nathan Gunn, Judy Collins, Audra McDonnell, Kristen Chenoweth, Betty Buckley, and the late Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, among many others. A highly prolific composer, Gordon's catalog includes opera, song cycles, art songs, and works for the musical theater, which have been produced throughout the country for more than two decades. The New York Times said of his music, it's caviar for a world gorging on pizza. And we are so excited to have Ricky here with us today to talk about the Grapes of Wrath. Ricky, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can you tell us, how did, did it come to be that you would set uh, this great classic to music? Was this some, a piece you had read uh, as a student back in school? No, I was approached by a Minnesota opera, and at, they were actually collaborating with um, Utah Opera. Both companies wanted to commission an opera of the Grapes of Wrath, and they approached me and... Um, it's funny that you said, did you read it? Because uh, they met with me at a cafe in New York, a very famous cafe that's no longer there called Cafe La Fortuna. And, um, you know, they said, we, we would love to do an opera of the Grapes of Wrath. And I said, um, well, I, I definitely need to reread that book. And, um, of course, I had never read the book. So <laughs> I was like, when I got on a, I was about to go to California and I got on a plane and I took the book with me. And I read the book going there, and then I read it all through the trip, and I read it coming back, and I finished it on the plane. And really, it, it mostly, I was just, I was terrified, but also, well, the book completely floored me. I had only seen the movie, and of course, the movie doesn't have the end. The book floored me, and I thought, this is really scary thing to say yes to, because... It is, uh, for one thing, antithetical to my, you know, suburban Long Island upbringing. But also, it just, it's like the world's favorite book. It felt like you could really crash and burn on this one. But it also felt like a fate moment that I had to say yes, because if someone's asking you to write an opera of the Grapes of Wrath, you're either going to say yes and rise to the occasion or if you say no, you might as well hang up your composer card. I mean, there's no better story. It's like the greatest story ever told. Now, I understand. I think, did you have to actually petition the rights from the Steinbeck uh, family to get the... Wait, it, it, it took two years. The, the Steinbeck Foundation, which is notoriously difficult, and I even spoke to Elaine Steinbeck on the phone, but for two years, they came to everything I did in New York. It happened to be a great moment because Audrey McDonald had made her first CD... I made a CD with Nonesuch called Bright Eyed Joy. My work was being done a lot in the city, like at Lincoln Center and the Guggenheim, and a lot of stuff was happening. So they came to everything and finally granted 
uh, me the rights. And then I asked Michael Corey to be the librettist. So uh, the opera premiered in 2007, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And then 10 years later, 2017, you made some revisions to the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a fairly common thing to do in the opera world, but why did you decide 10 years on that you wanted to make revisions and what form did those take? Okay, here's the thing. The Grapes of Wrath premiered in 2007 when, first of all, everyone had money. The next year, no one had money and everybody's endowment started shrinking. Now this meant that the Grapes of Wrath, which did very well at its premiere, was being done all the time, but nobody could ever do it the way it was originally done at the premiere, right? And consequently, there were all these productions, including Carnegie Hall with Jane Fonda narrating a concert version that were, because it was all piecemeal and every time someone did it, it would be a different version. Ten years later, it felt like it would be good for Michael and I to actually create a version that was affordable, performable, and that we signed off on as the definitive new version. And it's funny, um, I say this, it's not a revision, it's a new version. Because to, to say it's a revision in some ways would imply that the first version needed revising. And I very much like the first version and I'm glad it was recorded. However, I love the new version because it is a new take on the piece. It, it, we wrote a piece that reflected the budget we were given to work with in, in 2007. This version of the piece focuses in on other things. It somewhat, um, I don't, it, it sort of reduces somewhat the role of the sort of political voice of Steinbeck, but leaves it there enough so that there is still a balance between the story of the Jodes and the story of America at that time. Um, so I was, you know, and the other thing is, it's also a new production. And when you get a new production of a piece and it's a new version of that piece, it is a wholly new take on that piece. Whereas many of the productions of Grapes after Minnesota were the same production, only a different version of the piece, which can be jarring. So this is an entirely new animal. I was going to just clarify. Now, you talked about we, meaning Michael, your librettist. Michael Corey, yes. Michael Corey. Uh, Now, in this particular piece, of course, when you sat down to write this, we have this piece that's um, set in the Great Depression of the 1930s, Mm -hmm. which, of course, you're writing it today. But you infused a lot of the styles, musical styles, that were going on in the 30s. Could Mm -hmm. you tell us about how you decided to do that and when you decided to use that? Yes. The the thing about... um, I grew up listening to all kinds of music. I never sort of delineated between, you know, serious music or pop music. I just liked everybody. I always say, you know, I have a letter from Joni Mitchell over my piano. But, and also my mother was a singer and I was her accompanist and my father was obsessed with Scott Joplin. So I am sort of a trash can of American music. I kind of know it all. I know Hmm. every song Gershwin wrote, every song Cole Porter wrote, Jerome Kern, I just know a lot of music, and because of my sisters, I knew all of Woody Guthrie, Joan Baez, all the folk music going all the way back from, I had that recording, it's an archival recording of all the folk music ever recorded in America. So the thing is, I knew that The Grapes of Wrath was gonna be a great opportunity to just sort of unleash everything I've ever listened to. Do you know what I mean? And it was, the story lent itself 
to a kind of trash can ear. Do you oh, know what I mean? Definitely. And that's what I did. I just, I threw everything in plus the kitchen sink. <laughs> so talking about The Grapes of Wrath, of course, you have to talk about this great novel, which you sort of alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a change in your opera um, from the novel, and that is uh, centered on the character of Noah. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the difference of how Noah's journey um, and characterization uh, is somewhat changed in your uh, version. And so why and and how and all of that? I'm so glad you asked that because it's it's funny. It's the one big change in the opera. And ironically... The Steinbeck estate, which is so notorious, actually loved our change. And what it was was when when both Michael and I read the book, there was something that bothered both of us, and it was that Noah, who's the older Jode brother, who is slow, at one point literally walks down a river and is never heard from again. Just It feels like Steinbeck just disappears him. Now, that is not to say that that is not effective and meaningful and tragic in the book. But somehow Michael and I felt we could take advantage of that moment and and make it a bigger moment. Michael sometimes says, funnily, he needed a finale to act two. But what we ended up doing was we gave Noah a death. And what, what we ended up creating was a whole thing where... Noah is that when the Jode family arrive at in Hooverville, which is you know this disgusting encampment of refugees, basically, um, he starts fumbling with the the strings to for the tent that the Jodes are sitting up, and his brother Al says, "Leave the tent, be pea brain. You'll tangle them ropes and strangle yourself." And then he basically says to Noah, "You're." ballast on a sinking ship and Noah's mystified and he says what's ballast Al says what weigh us down and don't earn a cent no wonder we can't make a dent in California two kids one numbskull and one pregnant gal they see us coming and wham up goes that wall we see Noah we see in his eyes he has an idea he learned a word ballast so at the end of that scene there's a fight breaks out, and Tom Jode gets cut in the face. Ma Jode hands Noah a bucket and says, Noah, Tom's been hurt. Go down to the creek and get some water. For once in your life, Noah, be a help. So Noah goes down to the creek, and he has this bucket, and it's dark out, and he's staring at the sort of glistening water, and first he... He's standing there by himself, and he recounts the story of Noah, which is the only story he knows because it's the story he's been named after, right? And he's standing there, and he somehow puts the idea that Noah was a help because he saved all the animals, and he, this Noah, can be a help by giving his family one less mouth to feed. And instead of putting water in the bucket, he fills it with stones, and he drowns himself. And as he's dying, he has one dying memory, and we suddenly see a younger, less careworn Marjode. She's holding a baby, and she sings a lullaby to this little baby called Simple Child, which is what she called Noah, and it's his dying memory. And as she's singing that to him, and he's drowning, and we see him drowning, we suddenly see in the background 
the whole Hooverville burning to the ground. Wow. Ricky, I was going to say, before you arrived here, you know, I've been studying your music incessantly. You did a couple of wonderful um, lectures at Wayne State, mm-hmm. uh, some of the humanities uh, department and also composition uh, students. And I learned that you, off the top of your head, could probably recite a hundred poems. Yes. I mean, that's how fascinating, I mean, that's how deeply immersed you are in the words. And I realized for you, it seems the music and the words are almost of equal weight. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? I think the, I think it came from, first of all, um, poetry is my first love, as I've I've shared with you, but when I was a little boy, my older sister, Susan Lydon, who was a very well-known writer, if you can, um, put me to bed by reading poems to me. And the idea that poem, that poetry was lullaby for me, made me very sensitive to the cadence of words. I've always loved words. And for me, music first was born out of, I fall in love with a poem or I fall in love with words and it's as if setting words to music is almost like making love to them. And so it's very important to me to fulfill what I think the promise and the success of those words are, right? To to make those words, I want it to be, I feel like I've failed if you can't hear the words being sung and not only hear every word, but hear the intention that the composer and the writer had in setting them to music. You know what I mean? You know the way sometimes you hear words sung and they're obscured in the setting? I'm very, I'm obsessed with prosody, which is how the words fall in the music. And for me, a lot of the melodic ideas, I would even say all the melodic ideas, are born out of what the words are doing, how they fall. Even the way you set the rhythm of the words and the language and the phrases mm-hmm. within the poetry is how you set the music. It's it's fa- it's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's and it's everywhere in that opera. Like you know, Tom's aria is called "I Keep My Nose Clean of Trouble." Now you just say "I Keep My Nose Clean of Trouble," but you sing "I Keep My Nose Clean of Trouble." You know, or Ma Jode's aria is "This Dead Land Is Us," but she sings "This Dead Land." is us, you know, and the, the all the melodies are born out of what feels to me the cadence of the words. It's very deeply important to me. It may even be the basis of my entire aesthetic. Sort of one of the glories and one of the tragedies of The Grapes of Wrath, both as a novel and an opera, is its utter and extreme resonance at this moment in time. And that made it very profound writing it. You know, there is a whole thing about building a wall. There is the whole thing about refugees going somewhere where they are promised work and safety, and there is no work and safety and no food. It is as if The the Grapes of Wrath was written yesterday. That made writing it feel very vital and very exciting and also very sad. And I think it's still one of the most beautiful things about the opera and one of the saddest things about the opera. Yeah. For me, the ending that you wrote, it, it's just its just devastating. The well, ending it's the piece. most beautiful, it's probably the most beautiful end of any novel ever written. It is so clearly channeled straight from God that that this this woman who gives birth to a dead baby 
cradles a man who is starving to death and feeds him the milk from the breast, from her own breast. It's it's like the whole cradling civilization with the milk of human kindness and generosity. And the way she says to him, he doesn't want to take her breast. And she says, take it, mister. You got to. In trouble, hurt, or need, go to poor people. We the only ones who help. I help you. You help me. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ricky, and for sharing. We appreciate you. You're welcome. I appreciate you. And thank you, too, to everyone listening to our glimpse into the Grapes of Wrath. We hope we see you at the Detroit Opera House to catch this beautiful production, opening May 11th and running through May 19th. To purchase tickets to The Grapes of Wrath or to find more information on the opera, visit our website at michiganopera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>